Thank you, Garrett. Oh, I've been there. I remember, I remember having young kids, like when we had twins when we started, and getting up on Sunday morning, being really tired, and just looking out there at all the faces, and you're like, I'm not sure I remember how words work. I'm <laughs> just like, <laughs> so, but you did great. Thank you, Garrett. And good morning uh, to everyone who is here, both of you who are here and those who are joining us online. I uh, just want to welcome you, uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be actually looking at 6 and 7 this morning, uh, but mostly focusing on Acts 6, verses 8 to 15. And this will be sort of our last sermon on the book of Acts for a little while. We're going to take a break, uh, maybe for the summer. Uh, But I didn't want to stop before I kind of tied up some sort of loose ends, because the passage we have before us actually began in chapter 6, because it's the story of one of the seven men that we were introduced to last time. Uh, And the man's name is Stephen. Uh, You can follow along with me as I read his story in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15 is what we're going to be reading. And it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly investigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, um, just pray that you would be with us in just a powerful way this morning. Lord, that your presence would be among us, that your Holy Spirit would uh, just be moving in our hearts and in our lives. And that, Lord, you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds just on the words you would uh, have us here this morning. Um, Lord, that these words would draw our hearts closer to you, that they would transform us, um, and that they would remind us that we are your own and encourage us to live lives just completely devoted to you in every way. And Lord, even as we come to communion even a little later, just may our hearts also be on your son, Jesus Christ, uh, who, through, who through all things are possible, but Lord, who through, through whom we have salvation and the assurance of our hope in him. Lord, may we be mindful of all of these things as we come to look at your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start this morning by asking you, an important question. Um, what does it mean to be a success? Uh, because as a society, I think we're kind of obsessed with this question. We want success. You know, we want to have a successful career. We want a successful marriage or a successful relationships. We want a successful life. And I think it all comes down to this idea that we want our lives to mean something. 
You know, we want our life to matter. And we want to know that, you know, what we are doing as we hurl, hurl around the solar system on this big rock called Earth, we want to know that it's making a difference, that we're making an impact, that we're doing something significant, that we have a purpose. We want to be thought of as a success. But how do we define that? Because for some people, uh, success is when you make your first million dollars. For others, it's when they finally find fame or have a certain number of followers. Others, it may be, you know, taking early retirement. For others, I think they're just happy to see their kids grow up and make good choices. And then there's always those who are fond of saying that maybe it's the person who dies with the most toys is the one who really wins. Success can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But that's actually what brings us to our passage in the book of Acts this morning. Because in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to this fellow named Stephen. And if you remember from last time, in the early church, uh, a need came up. Uh, some people were being sort of overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They, they needed some people just to help serve. Uh, it was a job that was as simple as sort of waiting on tables and taking food out to some of the widows in the church who maybe weren't getting it. They were overlooked. And, and Stephen was one of the men who said, you know what, I'll, I'll come forward and I'm willing to help. Uh, he, he really had just a servant's heart. And actually I found a great quote this week. I don't know if I can remember it, but it talks about, you know, it's not the number of servants you have that matters. It's the number of people you serve in your life. That's, that's kind of Stephen's heart. Servant-hearted guy. And he brought with him, as he came to this position, just a glowing character reference. Uh, if you look back a few verses to Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it said, When they said this, it pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And just know this, when it says Stephen was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, it means that faith and the Holy Spirit were the things in his life that influenced him and motivated him. When Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul's telling people, telling believers, we need to be filled by the Spirit by yielding our lives more and more to God. To be filled with the Spirit is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. It is allowing the Holy Spirit to guide and lead your life in every area. Because you know what? We talk about people who are full of fear, where fear is what controls their life. We talk about people who are full of anger, uh, who are basically slaves to their rage. We talk about people who are full of bitterness or people who are full of regret because their lives are defined and shaped and controlled by those things. But Stephen, we're told, was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It's a way of saying Stephen was a guy who God had a hold of his life. Uh, he wasn't a double-minded person. He wasn't trying to, you know, sort of have things both ways. He wasn't someone who was trying to look holy on Sunday mornings, but was still trying to get away with casual sins in his life. He wasn't a, sort of a just sort of kind of maybe sort of, you know, living his life for the glory of God. No, he was completely sold out. Stephen was a guy who was trusting and loving God with his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, his all in all. Which meant that Stephen did more than just serve widows in the church some food. His life and his character were on display for everyone to see. And that leads us to this in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Now, some people feel that back in Acts chapter 6, uh, we talked about last time, that when the apostles prayed over these seven guys, that they were actually given sort of a special gift for miracles when the apostles laid hands on them. And others think that maybe God was just doing some, you know, some, sort of a special work, you know, doing all kinds of miraculous things in the early church that we don't maybe see today. And, and either of those things, or even both of those things, may be, be true here. But what this verse actually tells me is that Stephen may have been introduced to us as a man who had a servant's heart, who was meeting a need, but because of his faithfulness, God was giving him new opportunities to serve. And I think it's a lesson that we can, you know, all learn today. That when we live our lives genuinely and fully for God, God can use our lives in amazing and even unexpected ways. Just because we're being faithful. God can touch the lives of people all around us so very powerfully when we are simply just being genuine and sold up to Christ. Uh, there's actually an old story that I like about a life of an evangelist. And God was using this man's life in a very powerful way. But some people around him became jealous and were complaining. And they were saying, you know what? You know, he's not the best speaker. He's not the best leader. He's not the best student. Why should God use him in such a powerful way when he's not using me? But then a friend of the evangelist replied that the secret to this man's success was not that he had all the gifts and talents of others. It was that he had given all of himself to God. And that was Stephen. And I don't get the impression here that Stephen sought out these kind of things for himself. I don't think he was the kind of man who was, you know, seeking to be a miracle worker or making a name for himself or doing these great things. He wasn't looking for a spiritual reputation. I think that it all probably came about something like this in Stephen's life. You know, when Stephen had a chance to serve God, he served God. When he had a chance to pray for somebody, he prayed for that person. When he had a chance to help out, he helped out. When he had a chance to care for people, he cared for people. When he had a chance to share the good news with somebody, Stephen shared the good news of Jesus with that person. And because of that willingness just to surrender and serve and be available and just taking the opportunities as they came, I think God just worked through Stephen's life in a powerful way. And yet not everyone was very happy about this. So we go into verse 9. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. As you come to those verses, keep in mind Stephen was Jewish. And it's likely that even before he became a believer in Jesus, he was probably very faithful in going to the synagogue. And as a Hellenistic Jew... Uh, that's one who spoke mostly Greek instead of Aramaic. Uh, Stephen likely would have been part of the Hellenistic synagogues, uh, which are exactly the synagogues that are described here in these verses. Uh, these were synagogues that welcomed Greek-speaking Jews from you know, different parts of the Gentile world. And likely what we're just seeing happening here is, is Stephen is showing up in these synagogues that he used to be a part of, and he's telling these people, his, his former friends and colleagues, he's telling them about Jesus which is something that Stephen seems to have a passion for doing. It's, like he, it's almost as if he can't keep Jesus to himself. Um, there's another story I like about a very soft-spoken man who was a commuter on the Long Island Railroad. And all of the locals knew him because on the 5 o'clock local, every evening, 
after the train had left the subway, this man would begin a journey through the cars from the very front to the very back. And he would stop at each and every seat and speak to each and every person. And his message was always the same. He would always say, excuse me, but if any of your friends are blind, tell them to consult Dr. Garl. He restored my sight. And he would give them a card. Every day this man showed up to tell other people about a man who had transformed his life because he was blind, but now he could see. And for him, this man, that news was so good. He didn't want anyone else to not have the same opportunity that he did. And that's what I think Stephen is doing in these synagogues. After all that Jesus had done for him, Stephen couldn't help but share his faith with others because he wanted other people to know the Savior. He wanted other people to know about the forgiveness of sin. He wanted others to experience the grace of God, a God who loved us so much he would send his only son to the cross to die for us. He wanted other people to know the joy and the hope and the peace and the life that he now had in Christ. Of course, not everyone was impressed. And we are even told that these men in the synagogues in verse 9, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. And here's an interesting idea as you read that. And Luke may actually be alluding to this sort of subtly in these verses because we're told that some of these men who disputed with synagogue were part of a synagogue from the province of Cilicia. And what you may need to know is that the capital of Cilicia was a town called Tarsus. And Tarsus happened to be the hometown of a young rising star among the Pharisees. He was one of their best and their brightest. He was actually a student of Gamaliel, who we talked about last time. He was a self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews, a man self-righteous under the law. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, in this corner from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul of Tarsus. And it's impossibly, you know, possible that Saul and Stephen actually went to head-to-head debating the truth about Jesus being the Messiah. And yet we're told in verse 10, no one could withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And I want you to just kind of try to wrap your head around that and get this picture in your head. Stephen, the guy who's currently serving as a busboy at the local church. He's waiting on tables. That's his, that's his responsibility. You know, delivering skip-the-dishes meals to widows. He's a delivery guy. He's a busboy. Stephen was going around to the synagogues, and he was out-arguing and out-reasoning and outwitting the best-trained lawyers and theologians and teachers of the law that the Pharisees had to offer. Some of these guys were trained from youth to argue the law, and Stephen was outwitting every single one of them. It must have been a very bitter pill to swallow. And the result was that Stephen, he upset the wrong people. And the tide turned against him. And as we read in verse 11, then they secretly investigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses 
delivered to us. So for Stephen, this life of faithfulness, this life of speaking the truth, it's now landed him on the wrong side of some very powerful people. And verse 12 actually indicates they came upon him suddenly. You know, it's like a police raid, you know, interrupting him even as he was like teaching and talking to people, arresting him, you know, in the midst of that. And they drag him off and false charges were raised against him. And then, you know, he's, you know, put before this biased court, you know, standing in judgment upon him. And you know what stands out, I think, most to me as I read this account? Is that it's almost exactly what they did to Jesus. The same lies, the same false charges, the same biased judges. And you could almost, you could almost wonder if they paid the same men to, to give false to- testimony against Stephen that they paid for Jesus. It's almost like the high priest keeps some scoundrels and liars on retainer in case he needed someone to commit perjury in court at short notice. Like, call Shady Joe. We need him here in like five minutes. Uh, It's crazy. And again, it's it's almost as if they lacked imagination. It's like they had one standard response for ignoring the truth of God that was plain before their eyes, which was simply, if you can't deny the truth of the message, it's easiest just to try to kill the messenger. And make no mistake, that's exactly the direction this is well headed. And yet notice verse 15. As all of this is happening, we read, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Here's Stephen. He's been arrested. He's on trial. He's facing false charges, false accusations. And yet his face showed that he was in perfect peace. And we're going to return to the idea of peace a little later on. But to me... To me, this is proof that Stephen lived his life so fully for God that he had no need to worry no matter what was about to come his way. It actually reminds me of a story of a faithful monk uh, who was weeding his garden one day. When he was asked, what would you do if today was the day that Jesus was returning to earth? And the monk's answer, which I love, was, I would finish weeding my garden. Because when a person is living for Jesus in everything that they're doing, they don't need to change course. They don't have unresolved business. They don't have unfinished errands. They just live their lives with Jesus every step of the way, every moment of their lives. And as the old saying goes, peace is not the absence of trouble. It's knowing the presence of Christ. So even in these dire circumstances, Stephen was at peace because he had been faithful to Christ even if it meant facing the consequences of the false charges that were being leveled against him. He was okay with it. And now slipping on into the next chapter, verse 7. We read, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he gives his defense. And I'm not going to read Stephen's whole response here because it takes up basically the entire next chapter. Uh, But I would encourage you to read it on your own in the next week. But to sort of sum up the general idea of Stephen's defense, it would be this. He basically begins with a history lesson of the Jewish people. Uh, He goes right back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He reminds them of God's promise and his unbreakable covenant with his people. And then he talks about Joseph and Moses, who were servants that God sent to deliver his people, both through a famine and through slavery. Then he speaks about David and Solomon, who had a heart to build a temple as a dwelling place for the Lord. 
And in doing all that, he reminds his listeners that God desired to make them a people of, their, of his own. That God sought them out. That God acted on their behalf. He delivered them from bondage. He answered their calls for help. That God revealed himself to them. And, and more than just sort of offering them empty religion and meaningless rituals, God wanted a relationship with his people. Which would be something I would hope every person in that council chamber that day would have agreed with. But here's the problem, and maybe even sort of the elephant in the room, the dirty little secret that no one really liked to speak about. Because as you look at the history of Israel, you realize that even as God was doing all those things, the response of the children of Israel again and again was rebellion and rejection. Because more often than not, they responded by hardening their hearts and resisting the Holy Spirit, and rejecting the servants that God had sent into their midst. I mean, Joseph was sold into slavery. Moses had his leadership challenge. When God gave the people his law, the people were building, busy building an idol, a golden calf as an idol to worship. And even that temple that they were so proud of was nothing more than just a building that could not contain the true glory of God. So Stephen is really pointing out that Israel is far guilty of worse crimes than he's accused of. Until they had at last, and this is his argument, rejected the ultimate servant of God, Jesus Christ himself, who is God in the flesh, who they put to death. And listen to Stephen's closing words. Skipping down to Acts chapter 7, beginning of verse 50, 51. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. At that point, it would be really nice if the Bible said something like, and Stephen's words won them over, and their hearts became repentant, and the truth set them free. Oh, well, that would be wonderful. The reality, of course is that Stephen's words were like pouring gasoline on an already raging fire. Look at the reaction. Chapter 7, beginning of verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that is the record of the life and the death of Stephen. And I hope I've kind of captured the moment very clearly for you. Because some of you may wonder, why did I bring you here to this place? Because for all appearance, it, just, it seems like an awful end. This good man has his life cut short. A man of peace meets a violent death. And our first reaction might genuinely be to think, like, what a waste. He died too young and just faced a disappointing end. 
I know there's moments in all of our lives when we could probably relate to that, that times of pain, times of loss, times of regret, and we ask ourselves, what do they mean? I mean, what does it mean when we live our lives trying to do the right thing and yet bad things and disappointments still seem to come our way? What does it mean when you do all the right things the Bible tells you to do and tragedy it still strikes? What does it mean when you do the best to care for your family and you still have children go astray? What does it mean when you have a dream that you would like to see fulfilled for God and it fails and it just crumbles all around you? What does it mean? Well, I think Stephen's life offers us an answer. Because at this moment in Stephen's life, when most people would consider it a failure, a tragedy, again, Stephen, we are told, had the peace of God. And that peace came not because he died tragically, but because he lived victoriously. Stephen had found the key to a successful life. Because Stephen, as we talked about, he lived a life of obedience and surrender to Christ and all that he did. And that's success. And that may be a new way for us of seeing success or understanding success. Because Stephen never did any of those things that most people in the world would consider great. He never conquered any enemy armies. He didn't gain great wealth. He never wrote a best-selling book. He didn't hold political office. He had no credentials. And yet when God looked upon the life of Stephen, he's well-pleased. And he welcomes his child home. In fact, it's interesting, as Warren Wiersbe writes, he says there's actually two words for crown in the New Testament. There's diadema, which means a royal crown that a king would wear. And then there's the stephanos, the victor's crown, from which we gain the name Stephen. And Worsby says you can inherit a diadema, a royal crown. But the only way to get a stephanos is to earn it. In Revelation 2, verse 10, Jesus says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The Stephanos, literally the victor's crown. Stephen's very name speaks of victory. So for Stephen, it didn't matter if he lived or died that day before the Sanhedrin because Stephen had already died. He died to himself because he lived for Christ. And that's how he lived his life every single day. That was his attitude. That was his victory. That was his secret to godly success. And so too it should be ours. This week I heard about a pastor with a great purpose statement for his life. He said, the purpose of my life is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because it's not about us, or making a name for ourselves, or building our personal empires. Success is about lifting high the name of Jesus Christ, and serving his kingdom, and living a life of obedience and surrender, and then just going home to be with our Lord. Reminds me of the words of Jim Elliot, who was once himself martyred for faith, who said, I don't care how long I live. I only care how well I live. And to me, that sums up Stephen's life pretty well. So what does it mean to live a successful life? Is it about getting money or fame or power or living to see your 100th birthday? It's none of those things. Success that matters is a life lived in obedience and surrender to God. And that's for everyone, man, women, young, old, rich, poor, married, unmarried, tall, short, everyone. 
That's what it means to be a true success in the eyes of God. Because in the end, nothing else really matters. Uh, and this is a perspective thing. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary trouble are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And if you're chasing after anything else, thinking that it will bring your life satisfaction, that it will make you a success, you're actually wasting your time. Because nothing else in this life can truly satisfy. Nothing else really lasts in light of eternity. So let me encourage you. Because you know what? No matter how many years you're given here on earth, even if you live to be 150 years old, our time is short. And if we want to make our count, lives count, we need to live our lives well. Live in obedience, live in surrender. We need to live our lives for Christ. So that someday we will stand before him and we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that's what Stephen's life shows us. That is true success. That's a life well lived. And as we come to the communion table once again this morning, we can remember and celebrate the source of that life. We come to this table remembering who Jesus is. We come remembering all that Jesus has done for us and how our lives are different because we know him as our Lord and Savior. No longer do we run after those earthly things or make the world our priority. We don't live for the here and now. We live for eternity and dedicate ourselves to Christ. And if you haven't received the bread and cup this morning uh, and you'd like to join us this morning, you can just put up your hand and we'll bring one to you if you've been overlooked. Uh, but I'm going to encourage you as we just take a short break as the music plays. In this time, let God search your heart and examine your life Allow him to call you into living this life that he desires for us all, a life of obedience and faithfulness and surrender to him, because that is true success. Let's pray.